Today is Saturday, January 23rd, 2021. My name is Nick Samarco, and I'm not joined by anybody today. Believe it or not, uh, for this episode, episode 63 of House Divided, I will be flying solo. Matt is out of state. He had, a, unfortunately, a death in the family. And Andy is indisposed. Uh, he is currently unavailable because, of course, he's actually scrounging for uh, his nuts and berries for the second half of the winter, as he does, as the mole people do in general. Today, I, I'm, it's not going to be me alone the entire time. So if your first instinct after hearing that you're only going to be hearing my voice for the entire episode is to not only turn the episode off, but also smash your phone and then throw it into a lake, uh, bear with me. We do have an interview today with former U.S. Senate candidate and author, John Kingston, full disclosure, I worked for John, so it's 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 a, it's a great interview though. We talk about some of the things that we've talked about a little bit previously on this podcast. John's book is called American Awakening: The uh, Eight Principles to Restore the Soul of America. But before the interview with John, I'm going to talk to you guys about. I'm going to first off, I'm going to take full advantage of this unprecedented freedom that I've gotten today to talk about whatever I want. Okay, it's liberating and horrifying at the same time. Today, I, we're going to cover the inauguration a little bit. I'm going to give you my thoughts on the speech and some of the first actions that the Biden administration has taken. Then um, I want to focus in on this concept of unity. What does that actually mean in principle and what does it actually mean in practice from differing sides of the aisle? I think that both sides are making a few mistakes in approaching this issue that we really desperately need in the country. So I'll do my best to kind of define what I think unity means in a pluralistic society and how we can really go about by doing that. And I'll also point out some faults as I am apt to do. Um, and then we'll go to the interview with John Kingston. Again, stick around for that. It's well worth it. This week, unfortunately, we had the passing of uh, all-time baseball legend Hank Aaron, not only the rightful home run king, he's also an icon in the civil rights movement, and he's just an incredible human being, an incalculable loss for Major League Baseball, and honestly, in the United States of America, one of the last baseball players to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, so... We're going to talk about Hank Aaron at the end of this episode. We're going to recap what his life was like, why he's important. First, though, before we roll into today's topics, give us a follow. <laughs> we don't know why, but our Twitter has been suspended at AHDPod. We're going to sort that out with Twitter. I think it's probably because we forgot the password and couldn't log in for a while. Follow us on Instagram, same way, at AHDPod. You can follow Matt at Matt3TsRLewis, L-E-W-I-S. Follow me on Twitter at Nick Samarco, which is S-A-M-M-A-R-C-O. Hopefully you know how to spell Nick. And he's not on social media. You know the drill. Listen to previous episodes for the convoluted method of which to contact him. Give us a listen on your podcast listening platform of choice. Also, subscribe to us wherever you can. Follow us wherever you can. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review on Stitcher. Anywhere else you can leave us a review. Do it. It's always helpful to have great reviews whether you love the show or you like it and want to see it a little bit tweaked to your liking, let us know, whether it be on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or just shoot us a DM on social media as well. We are always, always open to listener suggestions. We're always looking to make sure that you have a good time listening to the show as well. 
All right, so let's get on to the the main event, and that was the inauguration of America's forty sixth president, Joe Biden. You know, I, I I was I was quite concerned in in, in the weeks leading up to the inauguration itself, uh, just simply that the event, uh, about the event itself, there was grave concern and grave response from authorities that there was going to be significant violence at the event itself. So on the, at the outset, thank God for the National Guard. Thank God for the law enforcement agencies that were responsible for the security of the event. They basically turned Washington, D.C. into almost an occupied territory for the week leading up to the election. And... By their efforts, the inauguration went off without incident. I believe there wasn't a single violent act uh, anywhere in the city that day related to the inauguration itself. Security at an all-time high. And I I, I just want to say this... I think it was good that this inauguration felt different. I know people are saying that it felt hollow. It felt... Um, lackluster in the sense that it wasn't packed full to the brim. That just reflects reality. And while it is absolutely important that American leaders project strength and vitality and, and, and project that America is still strong, it's undoubtedly true. I think more than anything, what America needed right now was somebody to actually convey reality of what was going on. And there are a few really poignant moments within Biden's inauguration address that stick out to me. Above all else, though, what struck me was simply the the moment Biden took in the middle of his speech to recognize the 400,000 plus dead Americans uh, that have died because of the virus throughout the Trump administration's time at the helm of handling the crisis. I don't think that occurred once. Biden paused for a moment of prayer invited the nation to join him simply to remember those lost. And one of the startling reminders of the fact that we are living in an unprecedented time, not in the sense that there has never been a pandemic, but in the sense that we've really, as Americans, never been this separated or isolated uh, from one another. Not in the sense that civil war separated but physically separated from one another the the lack of social interaction over the past year is is unprecedented something that was really stark was looking out over the national mall and seeing no people it it was intentionally done and and was the right call of course to not have a crowd at this inauguration besides the people sitting behind biden and about 50 to 100 people, uh, I'm sorry, I'd probably say about 100 to 200 people, I don't have the exact figure for our listeners here, but that's what I would guess, people sitting underneath the balcony and watching Biden's speech, the National Mall was empty, and instead what they did was fill the inauguration mall, uh, sorry, fill the National Mall with with flags representing the 50 states, and if anybody's been to D.C., I've only been once, but what struck me more than anything else was the sheer distance between the Capitol and the Lincoln Memorial. As as people know, the National Mall is what separates, is that long strip of land with intersecting streets that uh, extends from the Lincoln Memorial at one end all the way to the Capitol at the other with the Washington Monument in between. And you could see from pictures at the inauguration itself, simply the sheer uh, open space that was there that was filled by those flags. And it really was a, like I've been saying, a stark reminder of simply the people 
that have been lost during this pandemic. And for the for the Trump administration's response has been to minimize that loss to suit their political goals or to pretend that didn't happen. And I was really I, I wasn't surprised. I was I was happy to finally have a national leader acknowledge the, the loss that had occurred in a really, really serious way um, because we're all feeling uh, that strain right now. Um, I certainly am. I, I know Matt is as well. It's astounding to me how much loss there has been and at the same time how disconnected that we all feel because this really has been something that has touched everybody, yet at the same time, we're all unable to share that collective grief. And I think Biden's Biden's pause in the middle of the speech to take time and remember those that, that had been lost was 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 fantastic. And another thing that really stuck out, the inaugural address was centered around this theme of unity. Of course, that's what Biden ran on. He positioned himself as the person that was going to unify the country, that was going to heal the nation's wounds, for lack of a better term, whether or not he's going to do that, uh, either intending to do that or, or, or do that practically, is yet to be seen. I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to, to Joe Biden that he actually intends to, to to unite. I hope he follows through on that promise. There was a there was a important section of the speech itself where he talks about our uncivil war. I'll insert that clip right here and then we'll we'll discuss it. So take a listen to that. But the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like look like you or worship the way you do or don't get their news from the same sources you do we must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue rural versus urban or, or rural versus urban conservative versus liberal we can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. So what Biden really is talking about in in that section of the speech, and why I think it's probably the best part of the entire speech, is this, this unspoken, undefined conflict that just sits at the surface of all of our political divisions in this country and really extends in many ways to all assets of aspects of American life. It's not something that we want to really acknowledge, but it's there. And that is our sort of self-segregation, our sort of refusal to understand one another, our refusal to engage in constructive dialogue, to in, to block out the, the idea that the other person might be right or may have a perspective that uh, is informed by their personal experience that is not simply dismissible on the basis of anecdotal evidence that it, that it that is not simply dismissible on the basis that it is anecdotal evidence it's something that we could all benefit from um, I'm going to quote here a little bit more from the speech and in, in, from that clip that you just saw he says, the answer is not to turn inward, to retreat into competing factions, distrusting those who don't look like you, who worship the way you do, or don't get their news from the same 
sources you do. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening, hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes just for a moment, because here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Uh, you know, personally, of course, none of us have lived up to uh, those ideals. And of course, I haven't always. And of course, none of us have. That's why they're ideals. But it's absolutely something that we need to aspire to in this country. And it's absolutely something that uh, Americans should work towards collectively. How we can actually do that is the key question of the time. I'm not quite sure how we do it, especially during, especially as we all sit in our homes or uh, physically distance ourselves from one another with a raging pandemic going on um, this this Friday. Uh, stunning, stunning words from the from the, the president of the United States. Uh, Self contradictory in a way that he ran on the promise of getting the pandemic under control and is now admitting this. Biden says there's nothing we can do in the first two months to slow down the virus itself, first two months of his presidency. And if you remember back to, you know, April or May of, of, of 2020, the high-end death toll with intervention was projected to be about 500,000 to 600,000 people. That's now the realistic death toll, listeners. We're going to experience some things that we haven't seen in about a year for a while, whether that be increased lockdowns in vulnerable areas or a significant loss. Jeez, um, oh I forget where I was going with this, but we're going to go through a very troubling period. And oh, now I remember. Big brain. How can we actually start to unify? And what does that mean? Listen to that transition. Not too bad, huh? So let, let, let's talk about unity here. What does unity actually mean? I, I want to stipulate right at the top of this discussion that I think both sides are doing something wrong. And that is that they're equating unity with bipartisanship. There's nothing inherently wrong with bipartisanship, but there also isn't anything inherently good with bipartisanship. It just means that a faction and a faction agree on certain things. It doesn't mean that they're unified in any real way. What unity, at least what I understand it to mean in terms of the American context, the United States are unique because we form a union of states. Now, just getting really granular here, the union of states is bound together by a few things. That is the ethos as stipulated in the Declaration of the of the United Declaration of Independence, that uh, we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to secure those rights, we uh, create government derived from the consent of the governed. On top of that, what holds the union together, what unifies the union, is an agreement to procedure, is an agreement that government is the place where we resolve differences regarding our differing political views. Um, it's not where we self-segregate into factions and ignore 
the serious debates that take place. So more than anything, what unity means to me and what I understand unity to mean and where I think people are going wrong is really unity to a process. Now, that may be really unsatisfying to some people, but let's let's think about this really realistically. I don't think that in any way, shape, or form, we can say that the state of Texas and the state of Oregon are unified in any broad cultural sense, any broad uh, political sense, other than the fact that they share a common language, stuff like that. But the main thing that unifies them together is that they're both existing under the union and they're both committed to the processes that are prescribed to them under the Constitution of the United States, as prescribed by the Constitution of the United States. So that's why I think it's important to distinguish between that bipartisan bent that I think people are understanding, that I think people are picking up in terms of describing unity and what unity actually means. So, I, you know, we've done enough um, criticizing of, of, of both parties, but I, I want to criticize just a little bit of, of some of the stuff that I've been seeing from some pretty notable people and people that I know regarding this concept. So I not it's it, it serves no purpose naming names, but I'm just gonna pick a few things, pick pick some qualms with a few things that I'm seeing. Let's let's talk about the first few days of the Biden administration. So the Biden administration in the first few days has made some controversial uh, executive orders. He should summon controversial executive orders, namely uh, Biden has stopped the uh, the has revoked the permit. I want to get this terminology right. I think it's revoked the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline to continue operating uh, in, in federal land. <clears throat> and has also said that he is going to uh, stop fracking, new fracking on federal land. And instantly what the Republican Senate, Republican Senate committee, I believe is the correct term, and and specifically honing in on people like Ted Cruz, who has kind of become, has, has beclowned himself in recent days, did, was instantly make this argument, this convoluted argument that I think really is incredibly weak, that because Biden issued a policy that would have cost the jobs of 10,000, it's estimated that the Keystone XL pipeline keeps 10,000 people employed, because somehow his policy is going to hurt workers in a given oil industry, a, a, a given a given industry, namely the oil industry at a given location, that somehow this is inherently disunifying and inherently divisive. I don't really care so much about the divisive aspect of this because Biden didn't go out and say the workers that are working on the Keystone Oil XL oil pipeline are evil people because they're polluting the environment. That would be divisive. Exercising your constitutional authority as president of the United States to rescind an executive order that your predecessor had had issued is not inherently divisive whatsoever. And I, 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 I really dislike this argument that I think really doesn't come from, from good faith from a lot of people. I mean, Ted Cruz, for example, fundraised off of this and then issued, uh, not issued, but released bumper stickers when uh, the Biden administration said that they're rejoining the Paris Accords, which I'll get to in a second, same same principle there, that 
uh, he fights for Pittsburgh. I love that the senator from Texas fights for the people of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, over the people of Paris, France. Now, that's divisive. That is accusing the Biden administration of placing French priorities over the priorities of the American people, which I really don't think is true. There are plenty of people that disagree or agree with the Biden administration's policies regarding the Keystone XL pipeline that do so with a real concern for the people that take part in these projects, that work on these projects, that are affected by these projects. It's important to remember, of course, I don't support stopping the Keystone XL pipeline, namely because it seems like the legal issues regarding the Native American land claims have been resolved. It seems like those claims are somewhat baseless. And the uh, the idea that this is somehow going to cause an, a gigantic environmental disaster, I don't think actually takes into account the safety standards that they build these pipelines to. And I think if your argument is that because it contributes to the increased consumption or production of oil that therefore it's wrong for the United States to build any more pipelines because we need to do something about climate change is very myopic in focus. That's okay. I think there are plenty of good arguments against, but of course I disagree. But going back to the original purpose of this, just because the Biden administration, again, decided to use its constitutionally delegated powers... You know, you live by the phone and pen. You live by the executive order. Republicans, you tend to die by the executive order, too. Uh, the Democrats found that out in 2017, and Republicans are going to find that out in 2021. But just because they issued that order, the idea that somehow that policy is inherently disunifying, or that policy in general is inherently disunifying, I actually think does a grave disservice to the concept of unity, again. You cannot have a united country if you are saying that exercising your constitutional authority within a system that has been ratified by all 50 states and agreed to by the union of states is somehow disunifying. You can't really have that unity whatsoever. So it's time for people on both sides to put down the partisan arms and make a concerted attempt to actually move towards unity. And again, I don't know exactly how we do that, but I do know it's desperately needed. And I think that more than anything, what we need right now is not for people, and I think this is what, you know, rolling into some criticism of uh, those on the political left, I think this is what we're going to see coming down the pike. I think this unity issue is going to be used as a cudgel by some, uh, in the same way that it's being used by Republicans, or in a similar way, not the same way. And that is... Oh, you're disagreeing with Joe Biden on X or Y issue? Don't you want to unify the country? You know, he's trying to unify the country. I can already see that coming down the pipe. And, um, of course, that says uh, logically bankrupt in, in, in my mind as the idea that using your constitutionally delegated powers to enact policy uh, within a union that 50 states have agreed to, so that's somehow inherently disunifying. So, you know, it's it's good to point out some of the differences between uh, criticisms that are legitimate and criticisms that really don't have a basis in 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 the concept as as defined 
that is the concept of unity as, as we understand it. Criticisms of people taking somewhat divisive or disunifying measures. And it's going to be incumbent on people that are really interested in seeing unity pursued in this country to make that distinction. It's absolutely vital that they do. Because if they don't, then who is? Are we going to leave that to the people that are just rent seekers seeking to self-aggrandize and seeking to promote their own political interests and uh, above all else? Uh, certainly not. Um, this is a time where both sides have to be really careful about rhetoric if they actually want to if they actually want to achieve meaningful change. Republicans need to make measured criticisms against against the Biden administration. There cannot be blanket opposition to the Biden administration. That's that's another thing I want to talk about, this idea of blanket opposition. The idea of blanket opposition has a lot to do with the sort of popular front mentality that has taken place within the 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 the, the body politic of the United States for the past 15-20 years. And what we mean by popular front, I read a read a great book by George Orwell last year it's it's basically his memoir of fighting in fighting fighting in the Spanish Civil War homage to Catalonia uh Catalonia I think I I think we actually shouted this out in a what you're looking at segment I can't remember for the life of me what episode it was but if you want to hear the full review go ahead and take a look but in it Orwell relates the story for those of you that don't know Orwell is a British man uh who fought with the uh, the the socialist he is actually part of the FARC if my memory serves me right which was an anarchist group um, that fought alongside the socialists in the communist against the Francoists who were the fascists uh, supporting the Spanish government uh, with the help of Hitler in the Spanish Civil War really no good sides on the Spanish Civil War whatsoever um, it, it, we can say that Franco is bad obviously but anyways back to this Popular Front idea. What Orwell conveys really well in homage, to, in homage to Catalonia is this idea of the popular front and how it can actually really dissolve quickly. So, for example, Orwell fights with the anarchists. The anarchists are allied with socialists. The socialists are allied with the communists. And there are a number of other smaller factions and parties that fight alongside those opposed to Franco. And then with Franco, you have the Francoists, you have the people that are loyalists, you have other factions that fight with Franco. And what Orwell really talks about more than anything else is how the war was reported and how the meaning of the war was conveyed and how the practices of the war were being conveyed, who was responsible for the eventual defeat of the uh, the anti-Francoists. And under a popular front, what you do is coalesce around opposition. You coalesce around opposition. Now, what does that mean, practically? It means you stand for being against something. It doesn't mean you stand for being for something. That triggers a substantial resistance to the opponent that you coalesce around, but it also silences those that may disagree within the popular front. And eventually that disagreement has to be either suppressed severely because one one member of the faction cannot bring themselves to be silent anymore or they deal with the dissent 
in a productive manner and the popular front breaks down. What I see happening right now is a sort of popular front occurring on the right that is quite troublesome. And that goes to the idea that you need to have blanket opposition to the Biden administration or that conservatives should form some sort of peaceful resistance. I don't even know what that means, that that now is the time to form peaceful resistance. Um, you know, a lot hinges on what that term resistance means. If that just means standing up for conservative policy and pursuing conservative policy and standing up against or or, or voting down progressive policy... Welcome to the club. I don't know where you've been for your entire life if you were a conservative during that time uh, and you're not doing nothing you're not doing much noble now you're you're not uh, pursuing nobility now by saying that you're now part of the conservative resistance that's kind of funny to me the idea of it. But you also see this on the left and that is that I again referring to this cudgel of unity the popular front now and what you're seeing from Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer, too, is that we are now the party of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is our leader, and we are going to pursue this policy of unity regardless of, well, regardless of what that actually means. And if you don't agree with it, if you don't, um, if you don't fall in line, that's not going to be tolerated. I don't know as much of the interworkings of the Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer coalition there because I'm simply not interested in it as much as I'm interested in the the discrepancies and differences between different factions on the right. Um, now is not the time for popular fronts, period. If you want unity, you need to let people argue, believe it or not. You can't have unity if you're shutting people up. You can't have unity if you're stomping people out to maintain the popular front. Just like Orwell's time in Spain ended with shootouts on the street because none of the information that was being conveyed to members of his popular front was accurate or actually uh, what basically happened to Orwell was that one faction blamed the other faction for all their problems. They ended up fighting to one another and Orwell barely survived Spain alive, escaped Spain alive back to England with pitched battles in the streets of Barcelona, hence the name homage to Catalonia. Uh, Catalonia. But of course, we're not going to see, hopefully, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully we don't see pitched battles in the street, but you're going to end up with pitched battles within your party if you don't address these 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 glaring differences. If you simply go by the popular front mentality, you're going to stifle that debate. And I, I'm just saying it personally, and I know that there are many agree with that that agree with me out there. And if if you a listener agree with me, let me know. Those differences are not going the, those different factions those people with strong disagreements to what the status quo is in the Republican party or the strong difference to disagreements to what the the status quo is in the Democratic party are not simply going to roll over so you're either going to have to actually fight those battles out um, or you're going to see a fracturing you're going to see disunity and um, that's the counterproductive uh, result of trying to artificially enforce unity in, in a popular front mentality. So, all right. I hope that wasn't a total train wreck. I don't know if it was. Bear with me if it was. Bear with me if I put you to sleep. Um, I, oh, I forgot to mention one thing. Rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. That was the other big 
thing that the Biden administration did on day one. Look, I'm not going to get totally overworked over this because the uh, the United States is meeting their goals of, of hitting the emissions reductions in the Paris Climate Accords and has been doing so while out of the Paris Climate Accords. It's not going to be that economically damaging. What it basically seems to me to be is a signaling device to show the rest of the world, hey, the United States is committed to fighting climate change. I think that can be done a number of better ways. Uh, I'd like to see some more investment into our, 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 our climate change policy at multilateral institutions like the United Nations. I hope that comes. But, um, you know... It's, it's not the end of the world, but it also isn't this grand prize that people are, uh, I think some people are making it out to be. It, it, it really is purely symbolic in, in, in function. Um, I, I, maybe not purely in the sense that we get to sit at a table somewhere in France and talk about things, but it really is that not that big of a deal. Um, it's just, I guess, a changing of the guard. There's a new sheriff in town to use all the cliches that is now serious about climate change. Hey, I'm glad they're serious about climate change. As always, though, the devil is in the details. So with that, let's now talk about some of the some of the finer details about things, especially the, the, the past two weeks. Let's throw a Tory interview with author and former U.S. Senate candidate John Kingston. As previously alluded to, we now welcome on John Kingston, author of American Awakening, Eight Principles to Restore the soul of America and founder of the First Principles Project. John, welcome back to House Divided. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah, so um, let's just roll right into the discussion of the book. I really want to uh, figure out why you make this very uh, important distinction in breaking down your book into two parts, and that is who you are and who we are. So can you explain a little bit the logic behind sort of breaking down into the individual and then the, the, the collective um, in terms of, of, of sort of the purpose of the book is uh, storing away division and trying to reunite this country. So I wonder why you make that very um, clear division in the first place. Terrific. Well, look, thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you and your, and your uh, audience. And, uh, you know, uh, Nick and I had the pleasure of, of working together on uh, my 2018 Senate campaign. And, and one of the things that I found when I was out there is that I met people all around um, the Commonwealth and I discovered uh, that, that we were trying to achieve something in the political and public square uh, that was almost impossible given the state of everybody's hearts and minds. Uh, the, the, the fear, the, 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 the pain, the lack of understanding who we are. Um, I'm gonna be, and I'm a spiritual guy, so I'm gonna say it as children of God, and as citizens of our country, um, we're lost to people, and, and so that's what prompted my American Awakening movement um, after after the, the, the you know I, I lost in 2018 was to say hey we, before we figure it out in the public square together we're going to have to remember who we are actually as people first, uh, and, and so that's what uh, prompted me to uh, uh, you know take the trajectory through the book that you mentioned, Nick. It, it's basically. Um, what I find is that, that in, in our country, altogether too often for too many of us, we've just forgotten who we actually are. And so the, the, the out of our depression, anxiety, um, fear, pain, whatever the right words are to describe the, the kind of fog people are feeling. And this was before COVID, um, you know, before 2020, um, I was saying, hey, we're in real trouble on, on, you know, on finding ourselves in this moment. And, and what I discovered was um, and continue to discover is that 
oftentimes out of that pain, the only thing that animates people is anger at the other side, right? So, so you know, the only adrenaline shot they might have in their day is like, you know, owning the libs or, you know, hating the, the supremacist right or whatever, whatever it is that gets people's blood stirring. And, and that's just a formula, obviously, for disaster, um, because, you know, you, you, you got to wake up in the morning um, and, and, and you got to know, like, you got purpose, you got meaning, you got a reason to have your day, you got to, you know, committed to the people around you, committed to your community. Yeah, and so that's that, one of your, sorry to interrupt, but that's uh, no, please. a perfect little segue. That's one of your main, I, I believe it's the first, um, one of your eight principles here, and that is you have a purpose, believe it. And I wonder, is that purely a spiritual purpose in your mind? Um, in, a, in our incre increasingly secular country, I find it very difficult to, um, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic myself, and we talk oftentimes on this podcast about the intersection of, of religion and politics and how it is so crucial for a body politic to have a common ethos. Um, and for, for the first two centuries of this country, that was the Judeo-Christian ethos um, embodied in the Bible in the New and Old Testament. And I wonder if you see anything outside of, of religion as embodying that purpose that you say is so important. Oh, totally, totally, totally. Yes. Um, you know, when, when I, when, you know, I, I am a Christian and, and uh, that is the anchoring, um, you know, um, uh, uh, sort of cornerstone of my approach. But the book is, is designed for people that are not of people of faith um, to understand that I, I worked with, you know, the best social scientists, I worked with the best neuroscientists. Um, I, I surveyed, you know, the, the traditions, the Aristotelians, the Stoics, and, and all the major, you know, uh, positive psychologists and all the major religious traditions. And in the, and in the, um, uh, the first chapter, uh, I actually anchor this in Aristotelian thinking about purpose, right? So, so the first chapter sort of anchors and say, hey, the concept of, of purpose derives from um, this, this idea of, you know, often we think about happiness you know, um, in a way that, that um, ties to, a, to a, a, a Aristotelian word, eudaimonia, which is actually a purpose concept, right? It, it's it's uh, Aristotle was talking about knowing the role that you have in the world is the key to potential happiness. And that we've gotten away from that, the, the pr pr pursuit of what, what some may call, um, and sorry for using fancy words here, but <laughs> hedonic happiness, like, oh, if I get a nicer car, I'll be happy. Or if I get a, you know, a good, a, a good meal, I'll be happy. No, a good substitute, a good substitute word would be materialism. Yes, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Yeah. Exactly. Very fair. And so, you know, so, so we, we've got all these notions about how we ought to be able to achieve happiness, this, that, or the other way. And, um, and, and ultimately what I'm saying is um, that, uh, that it's to be found a purpose. And then I'll make one more, one more note Nick, here, which is that, that um, if uh, from an American ideals perspective, um, I uh, argue uh, that, um, and it's just true, but, you know, it's, it's not an argument often made that, you know, the uh, life, liberty, uh, pursuit of happiness, um, you know, in, the, in the, our founding documents, um, you know, the famous phrase, the founders were not talking about happiness as we think about it. They were thinking about uh, eudaimonic, um, that Aristotelian word, purpose. They, exactly. they, didn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't know, they didn't know happiness as we know happiness. Let's get good stuff, happiness. It's like, it was like this pursuit of, of, the ch of the chance to contribute what you ought to contribute on the planet. So there you go. Absolutely, absolutely. Good to know. Um, so another one of your key principles here is that we are more alike than we are different. Now we've seen the, the, the events of the past two weeks, you know, the last two months, 
where we have a storming of the Capitol that was based on two months, three months worth of conspiracy theories that a lot of people, though they may not, may not fully buy into, they're not fully willing to discredit. I wonder, um, in your mind, what makes us more alike than different? And then how does that translate into sort of healing the division in the country? Yeah. So, so what, what, one of the things I found, um, you know, out there on the campaign trail and I found over time it, is that if you talk to um, almost anybody, um, it doesn't matter what their belief system is or where they come from, they, they want, they want a few basic things. They want, uh, they want freedom. Um, they want, a, you know, a baseline level of security. Um, they, they want the chance to, to speak and, and, and um, you know, contribute to you know the, the the community, and you know if if you know they want they want opportunity to a degree. I mean, you know, uh, some people you know may want you know to be guaranteed more than they ought to get, but but you know, basically everybody would like to, to, to the chance for their for their kids to be safe. Um, you know, they, they want they want their kids to have a chance to go to school safely and and have a decent school and and you know do okay. Um, and so, it, so up and down the political spectrum, wherever you are, um, the most the most anchoring principles uh, of the, what people are, you know, oriented to in their life are are the same. I mean, they're, they're just not far off. Now, you know, what happens is that that um, you know uh, our we're, we're manipulated by people who take it say, you know, they want to take your guns and therefore they press on the security line, like you know. Oh, you will be insecure because your guns will be taken away. So, so let's make it about guns. Um, you know, they're going to take away my government support. You know, yeah. uh, from the left, and they, and and then the, the, and then somebody gets manipulated and say, that, "You see what they're doing? They're trying to get rid of you." You know, lefties. Um, yeah, I, th- I think of um, I think of CPAC's theme in 2020 of being America versus socialism as being a perfect example of that, right. representing an entire half of the country as wanting to implement a system that is fundamentally opposed to American values and that necessarily leads to totalitarianism as a perfect example of that on the right. And there's many on the left as well. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the right um, in this election cycle um, ran remarkably successfully on the anti-socialist idea. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, you know, I, I, you and I are, we're against socialism. We know that <laughs> socialism doesn't work. Um, and, and we also know that, that there's a lot of ways that you can certainly be creeping left, even jogging left, even running left, like we are right now, you know, the, the new three days of Biden administration is, yep. is, is a lot, a lot, you know, moving to the left than, you know, you or I would be comfortable with, but that might make you like Canada or it might make you like the UK. It doesn't make you like um, communist Russia, you know, the, right, right. You, so, so it's, 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 it's all, you know. We, we may, you and I may agree, and, and, and I'm sure we do, that that's not necessarily optimizing uh, for our country, but it's not the same as, as we're, we're flying headlong into the totalitarian system. So. Absolutely. I think, I think that you're, you're absolutely right that all human beings share those basic desires that you were, you were talking about, desire to make their family better than they were, desire to be secure in their own homes and, and live a, a fruitful life in which they can pursue their own version of happiness. But I wonder what you make, um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, of the events of the summer, the, the racial tensions in this country. And, and yeah. it really was an eye opener for me, especially because we're, we're geared towards college students on this podcast. Sure, sure of course. Seeing, seeing um, the 
the amount of people my age that were fundamentally opposed, at least in their minds, I don't know if they really believe it or have a full understanding of, but they were adamantly opposed to the simple foundations of the US Constitution of the Declaration of Independence. And that is a separate issue um, from, of course, the injustice that occurred over the summer, the, the killing of George Floyd and the, and the cry out for racial justice that was definitely justified. But I wonder, there are a group, a, a, a non-insignificant uh, group of people that do not share the principles and feelings towards simple American governance that has dominated, the, that, that has sustained the union since its inception. And so, I wonder what we do with that. So tell, tell me more about that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I may be understanding you, but I'm, I'm confident I'm not fully understanding you. So, yeah, so, so what, 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 are, what are they for and what are they against? Yeah, yeah so I think the argument that, that the, um, those that I'm trying to, uh, to, to shed light on here would make is that the American system is fatally flawed from its inception. And that because it's fatally flawed from the inception, we have to totally discard, disregard everything it's done, it. burn it all down to the ground and restart yeah. it from something. 1619 project sort of. Yeah, stuff. the 1619 yeah. ethos. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, look, I mean, it, it the, 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 um, that's, that's sad. I mean, it's sad in first instance. It really it's, it's is. Al yeah. it, it's, it's also, it's also, um, you know, to some degree understandable um, for the following reasons. Um, one is that, um, you know, we, we are no longer well-educated in our civic virtues. Um, you know, we, do, we people don't understand that, um, you know, 245 years ago, you know, we, we launched a, the, the most, you know, ridiculous, insane, awesome, uh, experiment in, in liberty, uh, order of liberty the world's ever seen. Now, now the, my, the arc of my book is exactly on the topic you're talking about, um, which is to say, we have not fulfilled the complete promise of that at any point. We still, we, we still aren't. Right. Um, you know, it was terrible, uh, tragic, uh, beyond words um, that, you know, a, a, this wonderful um, uh, experiment ordered liberty didn't, you know, in, in take care of women or Native Americans or, 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 or Blacks or, or whatever. I mean, slavery is still held. We all know these things. And, and, it's, and it's taken forever. And it's still taking forever, as George Floyd shows, um, to, to actually get that right. Um, so, so on the one hand, it's understandable if you think the world should be perfect. And that's what some of your you know, friends mm -hmm. think, right? Like, the world ought to be perfect. And, and we're not achieving perfection. So ergo, um, you know, therefore, the whole thing's flawed and burned to the ground. But if you understand it again, you know, as as um, you know, a, a right-sized or proportionate to the 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 set of uh, alternatives that have existed in the in the world over the course of history, and even now, um, you know, against the set of alternatives that exist in the world, for the you know the the only only heterogeneous country in the world that has had you know a 240 year experiment in order of liberty is you know Canada's awesome I love Canada I love UK I love Australia and I I mean I mean I love all these wonderful there's a lot of wonderful western nations but you know France and Germany and all these places that they, they don't have heterogeneous cultures we we've, we've got this insane you know uh, amazing wonderful thing where 330 million Americans you know as far flung as Alaskans and Hawaiians, and I'm sitting right now in a, a you know a farmhouse in, in in Vermont with two two feet of snow in the ground, and Vermonters and and Alabamans are so different, um, and we're white and black, or Latino and Asian, and we're young and old, we're we're all over the map, but somehow we've gotten on, 
and, and so you know you what 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 your what your um you know, what your 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 friends that you're uh, you know are, are reporting in on the subject don't see that that's extraordinary it's never before existed in human history and sometimes it feels like we're holding on by a very fine thread <laughs> these days uh, which is which is you know it's breaking our hearts i know it breaks your heart neck it breaks my heart um but nevertheless what we're, what we what we've accomplished is is amazing how, however imperfect it is you know you're a pretty good book salesman john because that reminds me of another one of your eight principles the need to remember and you, you, you subtitled that the cost of forgetting. Mm. So I wonder what you think the actual cost of forgetting the, the things that, that we said here um, are. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, like let, me, let me use an analogy here, right? Um, uh, you know, a, 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 I, I, I'm making this up in real time. It may not be the best metaphor, <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you know just, just say, say, say you're somebody your age and you're out there independent for the first time, really, and you may have come from a troubled background. Um, your household of up, up, upbringing wasn't perfect, but you know, your parents tried and they did the best they could and all that sort of thing. Um, um, you know, we in this country, are, you know, are like the, the people that came from, you know, somewhat vaguely troubled parents, but did their best to try to, to do. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it wasn't perfect, you know, for that person come from that household, right? It wasn't perfect. Um, and may, may not, all days may, may not have been good. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that, that like you know the roof wasn't put over your head. Doesn't mean that doesn't mean that um, you know food was put on the table. Um, it doesn't mean that um, I mean if it wasn't deeply troubled, they weren't they weren't abusing you, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it doesn't mean that, that people weren't trying to pour love into you, and they weren't giving you an opportunity to get away and be independent and go to a fine school like you're going to. And, and so um, <clears throat> this may be the only time in, in, in my life I, I'll use this metaphor. This may, I, this may be the first and last time I use this uh, analogy. Give it so a whirl. I, give it a whirl. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, just get, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying it out experimentally with you. Yeah. But, yeah. but it, you know, in our in our country, it's it's got that same thing. You know, it, it it's it's not perfect. It, it never has been perfect. Um, it never will be perfect. Um, that just you know, we're trying to perfect the republic, but it's never going to be exactly right. So what your friends, you know, that we're talking about need to do is to say, hey, I, let me, what they don't know is they've never, they've never lived in another spot. They never had another situation. They may, may be tempted like the kid from that household to just be unhappy about where they came from. Well, yeah. reality, reality is everybody's got problems. Everybody's, everybody's got, pro every country's got problems and nobody ever has done what the United States has done. You know, this, the, and, and so understanding this heterogeneous culture, when I, just to, just to be clear about this for your for your listeners, um, when I say I keep using the word heterogeneous, I just mean that we're as different on the surface as could possibly be. You know, people who love SEC football from the people who live in Greenwich Village, from the people who live in Berkeley. I mean, it's people are as different. To us that only have Boston College that wins seven games a year. I mean, exactly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And 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 um and so so you know we're as different as, as we can be, and yet somehow. We, we've to this date made this experiment and ordered liberty the most prosperous nation in the history of the planet, the most prosperous and powerful uh, nation in the history of the planet. Um, and, and yes, it is flawed. It is deeply flawed. My, my book in a lot of ways is, is intending to take those ideals, face up to them, um, how we've come up short, but not go to the 1619 project end of it and, and instead mm -hmm. say, you know, yeah, we're flawed, but you know what? Um, we're, we're all trying to perfect, perfect the union still, and we've done an okay job of it over time. We're not doing a very good job right now. So yeah, yeah, that's 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 for certain. We'll get into that in one second. But I think what you're getting at really is that the the key cost of of forgetting 
is perspective, is, is that understanding that things have been so bad in the past and they're so much better now. And that's not to say that you've been saying, like you've been saying, that they can't be improved anymore, but it is, it is a testament to the will of the human spirit and to the grace of God, really, that we have gotten to this point. And I, I just wonder how you can't really teach people gratitude. They kind of have to experience it. No. Do you think they can be taught? No, no. I told, okay. I'm agreeing with you entirely. Yeah. You, 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 you gave the answer I gave much better than I did. Perspective. <laughs> Perspective gives you gratitude. Yes. Well said. That's perfect. Hey, do you think that is something that can be taught or do you think it is something that has to be experienced? I, I you know, it's a great point. It's a great point. I, I think, I think, um, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that, Nick. I, I, I think, I think, you know, you can be reminded and, and therefore you can achieve perspective. And the more you achieve perspective, the more you actually are grateful. Um, yeah. let, me, let me, let me, you know, what one, one thing, which I think it goes to sort of to, to some degree to all these points, um, and it uh, uh, is that, um, you know, what, what's happening to the modern American is that, um, you know, on a scale of one to a hundred, a hundred being, you know, perfect, um, you know, the modern, the, the, the American experience holding aside these reasonable, this like terrible last handful of years. And, and the, so, but generally speaking, the, 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 the modern American experience in terms of prosperity, in terms of comfort, in terms of security, et cetera, um, you know, maybe it's an 83 on a scale of one to 100. I don't know. Pick, pick a yeah. number. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the number is. But, but, the, but the person that's, the person that you're talking about um, in this, in this, this uh, note. It's the 17%. Only, exactly. They're only looking at like how the 17% less it is than perfect. They're not looking at the 83 over zero. You know? No. And it's, and it's not, it's not that we can ignore their interest either. No, totally, yeah. totally. hundred yeah. percent. The, the, the points are well taken. They just have to be appreciated, you know, again, using your word in perspective, right? The 83 or whatever that number is, is a real 83. And, and a lot of people in the history of the planet and a lot of people now don't get to experience that 83. And we, we shouldn't take that for granted. Yeah, I, 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 think, it, I think a lot of it goes to simple misunderstanding or, or lack of knowledge regarding simple, simple history um, in the past even 200 years as to how far we come as well. That could go Great. a long way. All right, I got to ask you about some more topical issues here. Sure. What are you? Uh, obviously, the Biden administration is leaning heavily into, and I'm glad that they're leaning into this message of unity. I wonder what you make of their actions towards achieving that goal so far, um, and do you think it is an earnest attempt that will be fulfilled? Mm. Oh my, Nick! I, I've been, I've been, I've been. You know, in, my, in the short days in Biden administration, we're only three days in, um, and, and and unfortunately, um, I'm I'm I am disappointed. I'm I'm you know, and, and maybe it's just because I'm a, I'm a naive soul that that when people say they actually want to achieve this um, this unifying dimension, that they'll actually their actions will actually be in line with that. What I mean by that is. You know, whoever wins um, in Washington, um, there is a dimension of to the victor goes the spoils, right? It's 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 it's, uh, it's okay to bring your people. Yeah, the elections okay to, have consequences. Exactly, exactly. Um, but what if 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 you were serious about um, you know unity right now, I instead of you know honoring the interest of the most left leaning of your caucus, uh, you would you would have brought people to your cabinet that 
Some would be far left, some would be center left, some would be center right, some may be hawkish and right. I mean, I'm not saying you, you, the, the preponderance of them ought to be you know, hard right. I mean, maybe one, I mean, but, but just you, you would indicate to people um, out there in the country um, that, that you're taking seriously uh, the interests of, of multiple you know, uh, constituencies. Um, you know, when, when, for example, in, um, you know, just using World War II and, and Great Britain as an example, when, when, when Churchill came to power, he organized a coalition government, right? And, and so you say we're on a wartime footing. What that means is we have to put aside our differences and we'll act in concert. Uh, Biden says that we're on a wartime footing with COVID. And I think it's a very reasonable analogy. It, the wartime footing with respect to something, you know, X, Y, or Z is almost never uh, fairly applied. But COVID, it's reasonable. I mean, it's, you know, it's uh, killing hundreds of thousands, killing 100,000 in the last, you know, five weeks. It'll kill another 100,000 in the next, you know, five weeks again. It's um, astounding. So it, it, it's, I mean, it's astounding. It's yeah. astounding. Yeah, tragic. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to be glib in my use of no, numbers of course, to, get to, of course. to get to the point. Of the point is, like, like if you want to assume a wartime footing and say, we're going to come together, then you actually have to have actions which, which are congruent with that, not just say it. Yeah. And, and, and so he, his, his appointees need to reflect the, the mosaic of America better. They, they need, they, the, the, the executive orders you know, need to not only um, do things which are sensible, proportionate, and congruent with everything that we're all interested in um, right now, but they, but they can't, they can't be, um, yeah, I said to a friend a couple of days ago, um, you know, I, like, like a <clears throat> cosmopolitans of a sort like you, Nick, they understand election, <laughs> elections have consequences to the victor goes to spoils. Um, you know, you, you're, you're from Massachusetts, you, you know, you get what the left looks like and you understand and you might be able to be okay with, you know, with the, 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 the you know, the, the degree of prominence of transgender issues, the degree of prominence of climate change yeah. or, or, or whatever, whatever thing, whatever thing you, you, you get, but I'm telling you in Alabama and Wyoming, uh, you know, they're, they're like, that's just, that's just the left. That, the left is just trying to do left stuff. And that, this is exactly why we need fighters like Donald Trump. Uh, you know, they, they will reach that conclusion, which is the wrong conclusion to reach, right. by the way. <laughs> but, but, but unfortunately, um, you know, unfortunately, um, I, I, just, I just wish President Biden, um, you know, would act a little bit more congruent with his own words. So before we get to the 800 pound orange elephant in the room, I have to, I have to say I slightly disagree with you a little bit. So okay, good. yeah, good. no, it's good. always good to have disagreement. So <laughs> I think that um, I, I'm not as disappointed in the initial few days of the Biden administration as yep. you are. I think that, I actually think that what Biden said in his inaugural address is, is sort of something that I've taken to heart for a while now. And that is just because somebody's implementing policy, not that this was your argument, but I see it no. creeping up on many, 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 from many, many people. Because I think it's more prominent in the people that you mentioned that may not share. Uh, first off, I love the fact that Plainville, Massachusetts is now a cosmopolitan hub of the universe. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> but you're exactly right. I think that there's a, a gigantic difference between somebody who lives in the bluest state in the country and the way that we react to these things. And somebody who lives in Mobile, Alabama may react. To yep. these it's just, it's simply partisan in a way like that. But um, I'm less disappointed in the sense that Biden's whole message during the inauguration to me and during the campaign was that we, the, the unity message was not a unified front, we're all in this together as in much, as, as much as it was a 
unified, we should be able to disagree with each other civilly. Um, I wonder what you make of that because I, I'm really not broken up about, you know, his cabinet members not being Republicans or, or people like that. What gets me is I think he's already reverting back to the simple excuses that were made during the, uh, the Trump presidency and the Obama administration. Specifically, look at the way that he's handled the coronavirus in the past just three days. He initially said on the campaign trail he was going to make this massive effort to get the virus under control. He was the guy to get it under control. And maybe he's got some newfound lights on that subject, but one of his first actions as president was to go at a podium and say, there's nothing we can do about it for the first two months. There's no plan. And it seems just another excuse pushed off um, yeah. in, in immature leadership. So I wonder what you make of that meandering point there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'll go, I'll go to the, I, I think the more fundamental of the points are, are to go to the, the first bit of what you're saying. So, sure. so I understand, Nick, um, what, my observation, it's, 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 it's funny, I've, I've, got, I've gotten in this spot with, um, with, um, with uh, you know, uh, arguments or, or robust dialogue with, you know, with, with, with good and well-positioned friends of mine uh, recently. And it sounds like we may be in the same spot, which, sure. which is to say, which is to say, you know, I understand what he's doing and I'm not, it's not, it's not that I'm personally disappointed. It's not, I'm not, I'm not disappointed as in like, I, I didn't think that this is the way things would go. I'm just saying, I, it's, it's more like I'm, I'm it's more the, the, the argument that I'm making is be on behalf of other people on the other side of me and you, right? Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's like, so, so an example I, I often give going back in history here, right? I mean, I had the same hopes at the beginning of the Obama administration, right? Not, not, I mean, it was a tough time in America in 2009. I, and, and by the way, I've, by the way, I've been to the, the, the last three first term and not, I just realized this this week, um, I've been to the last three first term inaugurals, um, you know, George W and, and, uh, um, and uh, Obama and Trump, um, and uh, uh, so I, I think I, my streak's alive. I think I, I get this week. I get it. Um, yeah, this, you know, this a, one's an exemption. This one. A pand pandemic passed this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so I was there, and I was like, look, I, you know, I I hope you're actually going to embody, you know, um, the, the the sort of robustness of the not red states, blue states, but the United States, you know, thing from his 2004, um, you know, Democratic Convention speech, and and you know. It, and for a while, it, you know, it wasn't awful, um, you know, in that regard, but increasingly over time, it, it was, became clear that he was not governing with the interests of people in Mo of Mobile, Alabama in mind. Right. Um, and, 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 so, and so, you know, you know I, with an example I used to use on the campaign trail um, all the time um, was that, you know, it, 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 by the end, it was that, that his, his um, you know, his, uh, his administration was working to ensure that there were, you know, transgender bathrooms in Topeka, Kansas, in the schoolhouse, uh, you know, or, you know, whatever. And, and you know, it, it's just, it's just different, you know, in, in a lot of parts of the country that, that never actually experienced a transgender person. And they're going to put gender neutral bathrooms and yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and not, right. not that I think that's an awful idea. I mean, I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it's just a way in which um, it's just, a, I'm not arguing against the spirit, uh, um, you know, even of the, the inclusion. It's just to say, when you say to people everywhere out there, you know, the federal government from Washington, DC is gonna, gonna override your, your local cultural mores 
and and that and that's what I see with the early Biden thing. And so my my, my point is, it's, a, it's not so much to say, it's it's like it it doesn't make it doesn't make sense given the the you know from his perspective. It's just that I'm 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 thinking about it on behalf of of the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump. I get I get that. It's it seems like um and to use a business term here, it, it seems like their target market is very slim. For yes. Early actions, and I, that, I get what you're saying there. I yeah, really that, that, that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, it, it, that's a good. That's a good. A good. It's a, how is it that you can signal to the 75 million Americans, or at least the, the pers- persuadable amongst those? You know, half of those are probably unpersuadable. Right. Say, you know what? That that Joe Biden, he's an honest broker. When he said he, he, he you know, when he came in and he said he, he's like, you know, he, he's a, he's a, he, he prayed at mass that morning with with Mitch McConnell, and he seemed like a good guy of faith and. And you know what? I think he actually takes care of our interests too, and just that feeling that would come. For it, it, you know, it, yeah. I, I I agree with Biden, and 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 I, and I agree with your your channeling of Biden on this point. I think it was you, your your point is totally right. We don't have to agree on stuff, um, you know. But but you have to signal that you care about what the other person's caring about, even while you're saying, "Hey, I'm going to do it my way." Right. It seems it seems like you're. I, I, the point is well taken, and I think I mostly agree with it um, in in, in uh, on, on substance. And that is that your 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 main um, lament, I guess, is that Biden yeah. had this once in a lifetime opportunity in your mind, and I think it's true to sort of be the person, the bigger man above partisan politics, to unite around a common cause, defeating the pandemic, reuniting, whatever that means. Um, yes, that's what this episode focuses on outside of this interview. So if you want to hear that, listen to that. Um, any, any didn't. So, well, I think, I think, I mean, the, the, the opportunity is still open, of course. It's just, yeah. it's just that, it's just, it's just that the, the, the initial indications, it, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, uh, sort of do, do, doom to purgatory the, the, the entire Biden administration <laughs> right. based on three days. I don't mean that. I, I don't mean that. I just, I just mean coming out of the box. I was just, I was just hoping for early, early indications to be, to be, in, you know, and, and, and again, um, you know, I, I referenced the coalition government point, right? So, so, you know, in, in, as you know, Nick, you know, I uniquely had in management of my campaign, um, not only black and white, Latino and Asian people, because that's the mosaic of America, but they were also Republican, a Democrat, independent and Green Party. In, in my management team, you know, I had people that were, you know, I look, because that, that's America. I, 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 you and I would, I think, find like, you know, probably 95% DNA uh, mapping and, and sort of our views about what would be best for our country. Um, yeah. But I, I know, I, I, but I, but I can, I, I, you know, and, and so, so, you know, one person ultimately gets to, gets to decide, um, you know, whether you're the president or, or, you know, the candidate who's ultimately and, and, um, you know, holding a seat or whatever. But if you can, if you can reflect uh, the inputs of everybody to distill that, to, to the best choice you see optimizing against those circumstances. You know, that's what, that's what the greats do, in my view. Last question here, John. Um, again, we got to mention the 800-pound orange elephant in the room, and that is the legacy of Donald Trump, what he's going to do next, and how that's going to affect our discourse and the, the, the effort, as your, as your book alludes to, to, to restoring the soul of America. Mm. Because I think we can both 100% agree that he's been nothing but damaging to the soul of America since he's popped up in the political sphere. Mm. I wonder what you think the long-term purchase of, of not necessarily Trumpism as an ideology, but Trumpism as a brand is mm. in conservatives and in the Republican Party. 
I fear it's a lot larger than people may think. I'm curious as to what you think. I think it's enormous, <clears throat> um, I, like enormous. Um, I, I mean, just just to go back to the 75 million uh, voters, and we know we know elections are binary choices, so they you know it's, it's hard to distill too much um, significance um, from these things. But but ever right. since the guy ever since the guy came down that um, escalator at Trump Tower, um, you know. Um, it was clear to me that we were dealing with a, a, um, a mentally unbalanced and unfit for office um, man. And, and he demonstrated that day over day, you know, for the last five plus years, um, going back to that um, midsummer 2015 um, first offering, uh, culminating, of course, with, you know, um, asking for violence against Mike Pence, <laughs> you know, in tweets and and you know, in comments and um, you know, to, to the to the um, to the mob. Um, so, um, so the 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 reality that seventy five million Americans um, chose what to me is is quite demonstrably um, a crazy person, um, vis a vis you know Biden. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I, I'm, I'm not faulting anybody. Of course, seventy five million people didn't buy wholesale into the. No, of, exactly. of course, exactly. I, I, yeah. you know, I'm not making that. Argument. Of, course, of course, you're not. But, I understand but, that. But, but, um, you know, but fundamentally, um, you know, at, you know, post election, um, you know, he uh, told everyone that the election was stolen uh, and 80 percent of Republicans believed him. Uh, you know, that's amazing. Um, if, you, if you look at if you look at post um, post Capitol Hill riots. Uh, you know, post-capital riots, I should say, um, uh, you know, after that, that storming of the Capitol, an astonishing number of Republicans still believe the election was stolen. And, and, that, and many of them believe that the, uh, the actual storming of the Capitol was justified. And many of them, I, I, I saw this stunning statistic from an NBC poll that was conducted shortly after the, the riots among registered Republicans. More people believe that Antifa was responsible for the riots than thought Donald Trump bared any responsibility for the riots. Amazing, right? Yeah, it, it's stunning. I, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Jedi, it's an evil Jedi mind trick of the highest order. And, and it, you know, and it, it is, um, uh, you know, it's indicative of, of, of uh, you know, this, this um, um, dark brew, this evil brew, which has been concocted. Um, and, and it's gonna be very tough to unspool. I think the, I think that the, the best, you know, the best we can hope for, I think, um, uh, Nick, and I'm not sure it's going to come to fruition, but the best we can hope for is that, um, you know, the, the Senate does, um, you know, vote to convict. Uh, and, you know, to say that, that you know, those actions that day, uh, culminating in that day, but probably best put, we're, we're against the Republican treasonous and, and we have to actually, um, you know, uh, put drive the nails into the the coffin on that. Now, now that won't mean that it's over. But but it, it, it you know if if you know it by no, by no means will it mean it's over. You know so the, the the those dark forces are are running wild right now. But the influence of Trumpism, um, you know, has a chance to wane. I think if you if you say no 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 that this for the first time in history we've actually we've actually impeached somebody, um, and convicted convicted on that impeachment. So. Well, let's hope for the best there. John, thank you so much for your time. Besides Amazon, where can people find your book? All places where, all fine places where books are sold. Perfect. <laughs> Go ahead and give it a give it a read. It's, it's well worth it. American Awakening, Eight Principles to Restore the Soul of America. John Kingston, thank you so much.
And thank you, Nick. And thank everybody out there. And uh, to you and all, everybody out there, keep fighting the good fight. It's, it's worth it. Once again, thanks so much to John Kingston for coming on for that. It's just really important. And, you know, we addressed some very difficult questions in that interview that are going to need to be figured out sooner rather than later if we ever want to actually achieve that goal of reunifying the country. And I, I can't thank him enough for coming on. Um also helps that uh, the 2018 campaign with him was a lot of fun, too. <laughs> um, some very good memories there. Some very good people that I still talk to to this day were on that campaign. And, uh, you know, I still believe in, 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 in what John's central message was on that campaign. And that is he would do anything with anybody if it was for the good. Um, paraphrasing Frederick Douglass there. So with that, let's, let's get on to the final part here. Uh, a little bit of a somber note. Hank Aaron died uh, yesterday at the age of 86. He played 23 seasons in Major League Baseball, never went on the disabled list. During his career, Hank Aaron was a living legend, and and, and, and to the day he died and, and beyond his legacy will carry over, not only for his baseball performance, but for his contribution to civil rights in this country and, and just the person that he was. Hank Aaron is Major League Baseball's career leader in RBIs, extra base hits, and total bases. In my opinion, he is the all-time leader in home runs. Barry Bonds, technically, on paper, is the all-time leader in in, in home runs. Um, but we all know Barry Bonds took performance-enhancing drugs. I discount that record, in my opinion. Hank Aaron is the all-time hit home run record holder. Um, he played 20... Four All-Star games. 24 All-Star games selected to the All-Star team. 24 times that is tied for the most in Major League Baseball history. Hank Aaron's career was a true story of grit and determination from beginning to end. He grew up dirt poor in the South. So much so that he couldn't afford proper bats or gloves and instead played baseball with sticks and bottle caps. Uh, You could imagine how tough that was, and for many players, that was the story, and in many ways, it may have helped them develop the skills that they developed. Um, I'm thinking of somebody like Mariano Rivera that couldn't afford baseballs in, in, in his country, and so instead, they played baseball with a stick and rocks under the mango trees, and um, that's just how it was. That's, 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 that's the romance of baseball, that a boy from the deep south with with nothing to his name can make something himself that's an understatement he can he can turn himself into one of the best baseball players of all time i remember visiting the the baseball hall of fame and just being transfixed by the exhibit that they had on him um in his in his record breaking 715th home run i'm going to insert a clip here just just so you can understand how momentous of an occasion that was his 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 record breaking home run of, of vin scully uh, 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 describing the play, the, the all-time best baseball announcer, Vin Scully, describing the play and the implications that it had for broader society. So I'll put that in right here. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south 
for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron. So what you hear on that clip is absolutely true, and it, it is really part of Hank Aaron's legacy that is going to live way further than any of his baseball achievements will in the minds of Americans. I know in the least of the minds for me. Babe Ruth's home run record was sort of, in a way, the last vestige of baseball's integration problem. When Hank Aaron continually got closer to the record of beating Babe Ruth's home home run record, the threats on his life from 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 racists and those who simply did not want to see a black man beat a white man's record and become known as the greatest hitter in baseball history, the threats on his life increased to the point where his own daughter was receiving FBI protection. He received letters from people saying that he was going to be shot in the middle of the game. It 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 it, it was a ast- it's astounding to understand what that man had to go through. Um, I I, I want to read. Uh, a little bit from uh, an exceptional piece over at ESPN by Howard Bryant, who's a senior writer, uh, titled, Let Us Appreciate the Grace and Unspoken Decency of Henry Aaron. And so this talks about Hank Aaron's demeanor and and the way that it really speaks to something deeper about the the African-American experience. Quoting from the piece, Henry understood at once his place in the world and how his talent had created a different lane for him. The people who once dismissed him and his people made exceptions for him because he was the Hank Aaron. He was rightfully distrusting of them. He watched the change in how America viewed him as his talent kept kept proving its cultural racism wrong. And instead of his constant defeat of its presuppositions, the culture did not change. But in his eyes, he did. Henry became dignified. In the African-American story, dignity is such a sly and deceptive word, simultaneously complimentary and condescending, and dignity was attached to Henry like a surname. It's a fiction to him, of course, said more about his world than it ever did about him. For what was called dignity was simply an acceptable response to hostility, and it was easier for writers and broadcasters, fans and executives to concentrate on his response to hostility than the hostility itself. It is a common expectation of African Americans that they be more conciliatory and not vengeful, invested and not apathetic, constantly brave and aspiring, and dignified in the hostile territory of indignity. When he smiled at that hostility, he was dignified. When he did not, he was bitter. Dignity has always felt like a code for treating white incivility as inevitable behavior of not ever punching the punchers. And of course, this is not only reminiscent of... of, of, of Martin Luther King's Pact of Nonviolence, but it is reminiscent of of Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron's childhood hero, who throughout his entire playing career suffered unspeakable acts of racism, threats of violence and bigotry, and turned the other cheek. The true essence of the Christian the Christian commandment to turn the other cheek. And not only did Jackie Robinson embody this, but but Hank Aaron did too. If you could sum up Hank Aaron's life in, in one phrase, it, was be, it would be that he never showed. He always did. Whether it be in baseball, his soft-spoken manner, and, and, and his approach to the game where you get into the stadium, play the game, go home, and not be flashy. Or whether it be his approach to civil rights. He never wanted to be known as a civil rights icon. He simply acted in the way that he knew was best for himself and best for other people. Rest in peace, Hank Aaron, an all-time legend, not only of baseball, but the American experience.
one little bit of fact checking before we leave. I messed up. Orwell did not fight for the anarchists, and he did not fight for the FARC. Uh, the FARC are Colombian narco terrorists. He fought for the Partido Obero de Unificación Marxista, the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, basically the Trotskyist during the Spanish Civil War. So, my apologies. It's been a while since I've read Homage to Catalonia. That's going to do it for this episode of House Divided. I hope it was a good one. If it was a train wreck, you let me know. I apologize in advance if it was. Um, yeah, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you follow us there too. Follow me on Twitter at Nick Samarco, S-A-M-M-A-R-C-O. Follow Matt at Matt, three T's, R. Lewis. And uh, with that, we'll hopefully be back next week with the full ensemble, the full cast of characters. My name is Nick Samarco. Thank you for listening. Oh,